Hello, hello, welcome to Angular Master Podcast. My name is Dariusz Kalbarczyk and I am your host. Today, my and your guest will be Manfred Steyer. Or rather, I should say co-host, considering how many podcasts we record together. Today, we are going to talk seriously about Angular security. That's our target. Hi, Manfred. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Perfect. We have 36 incredibly interesting questions. Ready? Ready. Let's go. Let's, let's go. First, how easy is to get started with Angular security? Well, I would say first and foremost, it's quite easy because you don't have to do anything for security in general. The Angular team really did a good job with implementing security by design. For instance, everything is automatically uh, encoded. And so you don't need to take care of encoding something that might be an issue at runtime. So security by design is baked into it. That's perfect. That's perfect. Manfred, you are known for focusing on architecture. Yes? Yeah. How does security fit to this? Yeah. So when I'm doing architecture, there are two topics regarding security that are almost every time important, namely authentication and authorization. And the thing is, you need to respect those two topics in your architecture because somehow each and every part of your architecture wants to do authorization and authentication. Each and every part needs to know who the user is and each and every part, at least the use case specific parts, needs to tell the backend who the user is or need to tell the backend that they are allowed to do something on behalf of the user. Load some tickets, load some flights, create some invoices, something like this. And also, normally, we don't have nowadays a uh, user pool of our own because it would be ridiculous if each and every application had its own user pool. That's why normally we want to couple our application with an existing identity provider, something like, let's say, Active Directory. And this also needs to be considered when doing your architecture, because this is about, I would say, um, system integration. And yeah, different systems that needs to be uh, incorporated into your common architecture and into your whole architecture need to be respected there. Yeah. And how does our lovely Angular handle authentication and authorization? Yeah, the thing is, it does not really handle this topic. Uh, you almost every time need to implement something by yourself. There are several strategies you could just send over username and password in an header, in an uh, HTTP header. That's the easiest solution. But on the other side, 
sending over username and password time and again is everything but secure. And there are some other strategies like token-based security. Perhaps we have some time to talk about this topic later. But at the end of the day, Angular does not really help you with this topic. And this brings me back to my first answer I gave. I said in the beginning, well, Angular is secure by default. Yeah, it's secure by default. It has a lot of security considerations baked into it. But sometimes you need to do something in addition, especially if it comes to authentication and authorization. Okay. What is can active and can active child in Angular? Yeah, so those are the names of two kinds of guards. Yeah. A guard is a mechanism of the Angular router. The Angular router is quite powerful. And with those guards, you can decide if the router shall let the user do a new route or if this is forbidden. And so you can prevent that a user accesses a route he or she is not allowed to use. Saying this, this is not really about security. This is rather about usability because it's not that cool for the user if they can access a route, if they can fill out a huge form with, let's say, 20 fields just to get the message that they are not allowed to send those 20 fields to the server, to the backend, because of lacking, uh, of lacking, how is it called, permissions. Yeah. So this is more about usability. If the user is not allowed to do this or that, then they should not even see the route or should not even be capable of routing to this location. Okay, you mentioned OutGuard. What is OutGuard in Angular? Yeah, so OutGuard is not really a concept of Angular. But very often people use this can activate idea, can activate guards to implement an off guard, a guard that decides if the current user is allowed to go to this or to that route. And as mentioned, this is primarily for the sake of UX because it is not a good idea to send them there if they are not allowed to do anything there. Yeah. Uh, what is HTTP interceptor in Angular? Yeah, that's a quite cool concept. I really love it. And the thing is, we didn't have it for quite a time. We had it during the time of Angular 1. And then when Angular 2 appeared, we didn't have an HTTP interceptor. They have been reintroduced with Angular 4.3. It's already some time since then. But, uh, yeah, the idea of the HTTP interceptor is to intercept, as the name suggests, HTTP calls, outgoing requests or incoming responses. And you can not only intercept them, but you can also manipulate them. For instance, you can add security headers to outgoing messages, to outgoing requests. You can say, hey... I'm always abandoning this security header with, let's say, username and password. In the easiest case, it's not the most secure case, as we have 
uh, agreed upon before, or perhaps you just add a security token that tells the backend that the client is allowed to do this or that on behalf of the current user. So for outgoing messages, this is quite a nice thing. Just add security headers. When it comes to incoming responses, we could use interceptors to check for HTTP codes. Perhaps the HTTP status code is indicating a security issue 401 or 403. In those cases, we know something that did not work with security, with your permissions, and that means we perhaps need to tell the user that they need to log in or re-log in again, or perhaps we need to refresh an access token or just tell the user that they need to get a proper user account, perhaps a bait account or an account with more access rights. Yeah. So is Angular secure? Uh, yeah, this question is a bit hard to answer. I cannot say yes, I cannot say no. But as already indicated in the beginning, the Angular team really did a good job with implementing security by design. Uh, for instance, all the uh, data that is bound is automatically encoded. And you really need almost to break your fingers with sanitizing if you don't want to encode some text you want to show on your page within your template. Yes, you can do it. Perhaps you have a field in your API that gives you HTML format texts. Uh, in this case, perhaps you don't want to encode it, but for this you need to call uh, API by hand to sanitize this text. Otherwise, it will be automatic, automatically encoded. And from this perspective, Angular is doing far more than other frameworks. And I think this is also because of the fact that Angular wants to be the big solution, the big enterprise solution, the, let's call it platform. It's not like, let's say, React, where it's just about creating components, a very tiny use case. It's a more holistic thing, Angular. And on the one side, obviously, this makes it more complicated. And on the other side, you get such things like security by default. Uh, by the way, another cool feature Angular brings by default, more or less, is support for cross-site request forgery tokens. You can just tell Angular that it will get such a token via a cookie, and then the HTTP client will automatically send it back to your server uh, using an HTTP header. This is another thing that works more or less out of the box. Yeah. Okay. So you talk a lot about token-based security. Yeah. Mm. What's it and why is it important? Yeah. So um, a good metaphor for token-based security is an airport. Of course, each and every metaphor breaks at some point, but for getting started, an airport is quite a nice metaphor. Because when I'm 
going to an airport, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to the drawer and I'm showing them my passport. And so they know who am I. And so they can give me the ticket I've purchased on the internet. And this ticket gives me restricted permissions. They are really restricted. I cannot do everything with this ticket. But I can go through the metal detector frame. I can go into the right gate. And I can go through the right gate at the right time when the plane is boarding. I can also sit on the right place in the plane. Those are my restricted access rights. But I cannot start boarding. Sometimes I really wished I could start boarding, but no, I'm not allowed to start the boarding procedure. And I'm also not allowed to fly the plane. I really would like to fly the plane. I'm sure I would be an awesome pilot, uh, or perhaps not. I'm not that a good driver, so perhaps I'm also not that a good pilot. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not allowed to do this. And this is what token-based security is. In this scenario my ticket would be the security token. If we transfer this to the world of distributed systems, to Angular, then we would somehow get a security token in our Angular application. And this security token allows the Angular application to access the backend on behalf of the user. Most of the times, this is about restricted access rights. The user can decide which access rights they are delegating to your Angular client. We all know this from Android applications. If you install an Android application, the application is asking you, uh, do I have the permission to access your pictures? Do I have the permission to access your private chats? Do I have the permission to sell your house? And then I'm saying, no, of course not you don't get the permission to access my pictures, for instance. So as a user, I can decide which permissions the client gets. Those permissions are encoded into the access tokens, and then the client can use this access token to access the backend on behalf of myself in my name, or to say the least, in the user's name. This is more or less token-based security. So if you wonder why is this, this com that complex, the thing is, normally we get the token from an existing identity solution. This is the drawer in my airport metaphor. This drawer, this existing identity solution could be an active directory or it could be some cloud-based solution. Uh, and this makes sure that we can do single sign-on. This makes sure that the user only needs to have one user account there in Active Directory, in this cloud-based solution, and then they can use this user account to delegate some rights to this client, to delegate some rights to that client, to work with all the clients out there. And the best of this is, or one of the advantages at least, we don't even need to give the Angular client our password. I mean, that would be ridiculous if I would tell some Angular client my sensitive Active Directory password, wouldn't it? And that's why normally I'm redirected to the drawer, to the identity solution where I'm logging in. And after logging in, I'm sent back to the Angular client 
And as part of this, more or less, the Angular client gets this access token. And so it can access the backend on behalf of myself. Yeah. So let's talk about JWT. Is JWT authentication or, or authorization? Yeah, that's a good question. Is it authentication or authorization? And the answer is yes. It's authentication or authorization. It can really be both. Uh, or something completely different. Because first and foremost, uh, uh, JWD, some people call it JOT. I don't know where the O comes from. But such a JWD or JOT is first and foremost just a JSON document. It's a bit more complicated. Uh, it's most of the times two JSON documents and there can be a digital signature making sure that the uh, content is not manipulated. It can even be encrypted, but that's it. So at the end of the day, it's a data structure. And most of the times this data structure is used to represent claims. Claims are more or less key value pairs describing a user or describing their access rights or describing access rights they have delegated to a client. My client is allowed to book a flight, but my client is not allowed to uh, sell my house because perhaps I still need it for some reason. For some so reason. First and foremost, it's a data structure and then it can be used for both. It can be used for authentication. That would, for instance, be a so-called identity token that contains information about the user, username, ID, address, or it could be used for authorization to tell the backend uh, what the client is allowed to do on behalf of this. Yeah. So can we say that uh, JWT is similar to OAuth? Um, I would put it in another way. I would say JWD or JOT can be a part of OAuth. Okay. OAuth is a, I put it in a very simple way, it's a protocol. Officially, it's a framework with several flows and the flows can be seen as protocols, but Let's just to simplify everything, think about OAuth like of a protocol. It's about exchanging HTTP-based messages, which HTTP had us, so that at the end of the day, your client gets an access token. And this access token can be a chat. It does not have to be a chat. When it comes to OAuth, the token format is not defined. It can really be everything. I remember Microsoft once just took a .NET object, they binary serialized it, then they encrypted it, and then they Base64 encoded it, and this was their access token. And this is also completely fine from the perspective of OAuth, as long as the backend knows what the access token is meaning, as long as the backend knows that the access token is telling that 
the current client is allowed to book a flight, to create an invoice on behalf of this or that user, everything is fine. So JOT can be a part of OAuth, but it has not to be a part of OAuth. Is it safe to store uh, JWT in local store? Storage? Yeah, I, I really love this question because for some reason, this question uh, always brings up a lot of discussions and emotions. And there are as so often two parties. One party is saying, yeah, just do it. It does not matter. And another party is saying, no, don't do it by... Uh, no way, uh, because the local storage is long living and if someone gets access to your computer or if you are the victim of cross-site scripting, then they can read it. So those are the two uh, different meanings. And for some reasons, there is, as mentioned, a lot of emotion on this. But if you want to know my meaning, and I'm not alone with my meaning, then I would say it's really fine to save your token in the local storage. It's not that a big issue as you might imagine because if someone gets access to your local machine or if you are the victim of cross-site scripting, they can already do everything with your application. They can already remote control you, impersonate you, and doing something in the backhand on behalf of you, like uh, purchasing 50 pizzas or something like this. Um, the thing is, your enemy is not the local storage in the browser. Your enemy is cross-site scripting. And if you are the victim of cross-site scripting, It does not matter much if you have an access token, if you save it here, if you save it there, if you go with cookies. In this case, you can forget this discussion uh, because they can literally impersonate you. Of course, if your access token gives you more rights, more access rights than your application could use, then the attacker would have an advantage. So let's say you have an access token that allows you to do everything, but your client only allows you to book flights. So in this case, by remote controlling the client, the attacker can only book flights. By getting your access token, <clears throat> by stealing the access token, they can do everything. But one more time, in this case, this is not a discussion about where to store it. It's rather a discussion about how fine-grained or how coarse-grained shall our access token be. Is it really smart to issue an access token that gives you more rights than your application could use? This is the real question here. So, yeah, at the end of the day, make sure you are safe against cross-site scripting. Angular gives you some features for this, like encoding, but you also have to look at other features, like at third-party libraries. Perhaps they are bringing some bad code with them. And make sure that your access token is, uh, in, uh, is not too coarse-grained and not too fine-grained 
fits to what your application needs. Uh, the principle of the least access rights, something like this. Yeah, so this answer is not black and white, yeah? Mm. Okay, uh, how do I verify my JWT? Yeah, so um, there are two options. I think the most popular option is to give the JWD, the JOT, a digital signature. And then the receiver of the JOT can check if the JOT really comes from a trustful issuer and if the JOT has been manipulated. Perhaps an alternative to a digital signature is something like an HMAC. Um, it also acts as a signature, but it does not have this public key, private key idea. Uh, in this case, all the parties needs to have the same private key. But if you want to go with public key, private key, it's a bit easier for distributing your key material, then it's all about digital signatures. The other option is to go with callbacks, to ask the issuer every time, is this really a valid job? And yeah, of course, this is a bit more safe because every time I want to do something, I need to check if the current user is allowed to do it. That's especially important because sometimes a user locks out or off, or sometimes a user is thrown out. Perhaps we found out that he or she is a spy, then we need to lock their user account. And if I'm always asking the issuer, is this still a valid token, then the answer can immediately be no. No, please, uh, this is a bad guy. If I just relay on the digital signature that has been created, let's say, five minutes ago, then everything I know was what the state was five minutes ago. And if everything was fine back then, then I will figure out that the user is allowed to do this or Perfect. On the other side, calling back all the times is somehow um, is somehow uh, difficult. It is exhausting because it creates a lot of traffic, especially if one service calls another service, that calls another service, and that calls in turn one more time another service. If all of those services need to call back, then this is really exhausting. And that's why in most situations, it's quite usual to use a digital signature, but also to limit the lifetime of a token to, let's say, 10 minutes. 10 minutes are quite usual. Uh, 10 plus minus. Sometimes I'm seeing 5 minutes, sometimes I'm seeing 20 minutes. But by no way, eight hours, because eight hours is quite a long time. And if someone steals the token or if someone is locked, it would be not that cool if this user would be capable of using this access token for the uh, remainder of your eight hours, let's say seven hours or six hours, depending on when the user is. So short access tokens, 10 minutes plus minus plus digital signature is something I'm seeing very, very often. Yeah. 
So the question is, why use an identity as a service solution like Auth0 instead of building your own user authentication from scratch? Yeah, so um, I think it's like with all those as-a-service solutions, with all of those cloud solutions. Um, if you say, hey, identity, authentication, authorization is not a topic of mine. I'm not an expert there but I'm an expert for a different topic. For instance, a, um, a custom of mine is an expert for insurances and for comparing insurances. Then perhaps you want to outsource this topic. Perhaps you want to outsource it to some cloud platform. And this is where identity as a service solutions come into play. And OpZero is for sure one of the best solutions in that area. It's really simple and it implements all those standards like JOTS and OAuth2 and so on and so forth. On the other side, you know, not each and every company wants to go into the cloud and perhaps managing sensitive data like user information is something they don't want to have in the cloud. And in this case, they need to run some identity solution locally. Honestly, I would not hand create a, a identity solution in my application because you can do so much in the wrong way. And then you have a security hall and some attackers get you. Uh, if you want to have an on-premises solution, I would go with an existing identity solution that knows all the protocols like OAuth2, all the formats like JOTS, that knows how to make them safe and how to validate them. And the good message is uh, there are a lot of products out there, commercial products, but also open source products that uh, give you those features. For instance, Identity Server for .NET or Red Hat Keycloak are just two uh, examples for very sound open source implementations you can use on-premises. Yeah. You talk a lot about OAuth2. Yeah. How does it fit to token-based security? Mm -hmm. So the thing is, somehow your Angular client needs to get a token. And of course, you could implement your own protocol for this, sending a message over there and getting a response back. But in this case, you have two issues. Perhaps you have even more issues, but two issues come immediately in mind. Namely, first of all, you are not sure if it is safe what you are doing because there are very tiny attacks. No one thinks about if they are not security experts. On the other side, of 2 has been created by a huge uh, committee and several smart people that are specialized into security have reviewed this standard. And so you can assume that it is more or less safe, at least more safe than a handmade solution. On the other side, uh, and this is the second advantage of using OAuth2, you don't want to couple your application to just one identity solution. You want that your application works with each and every identity solution. 
Perhaps it's an active directory. Perhaps it's out zero in the cloud. Perhaps it's uh, active directory in the cloud. Perhaps it's Red Hat Keycloak or identity server. You should not have to take care about this. And to achieve this goal, you need to go with a well-defined protocol, with a widely adopted protocol. Only this assures you that your client, your solution, works with all the existing identity solutions out there. And this helps you to sell your product because each and every customer can use it together with their identity solution. What is the difference between OAuth and OAuth 2? Mm -hmm. So normally you should not have to care uh, about OAuth anymore, about OAuth 1 dot something, because it's an outdated standard. I mean, uh, also OAuth 2 has been around since 2012. And I think this shows how long living security standards are. OAuth 2 has been around since Uh, I think it was fall, late fall 2012. And uh, since then, it has been incorporated by a lot of companies and vendors, Google, Facebook, Twitter, but also in the area of business software, it's widely adopted. Even SAP is using it. And now the next step would be of 2.1, which will come out, I guess, in the next month, hopefully. They are working on it for several months now. And it's about incorporating best practices, all those things we have learned since 2012. And that's why you should not have to worry about OAuth 1 anymore because, as mentioned, it's an outdated standard. Another standard you talk a lot about is OpenID Connect. Yeah. Why do we need second standard when mm. we have OAuth 2? Yeah, this is a question a lot of people are wondering about. The thing is, OAuth 2 is really just an authorization protocol. That means OAuth 2 has not been intended for single sign-on. It has not been intended for logging into a client. It has only been intended for delegating your rights you have as a user to a client so that the client can use the backend on behalf of your name. The original use case, and this is quite funny, was social media. I mean, we all know this from different social media tools. I give them the permission to tweet on, in my name or to add new friends on Facebook on my name, or to send some birthday wishes on LinkedIn on my name, in my name, on behalf of myself. This was the original use case. But it's not about finding out who the user is on the client. But the thing is, most of the times we need both. Most of the times our client wants to access the backend in our name, But the client also wants to know how, who we are because they need to show different menu items with respect to our rights and so on and so forth. And that's why a lot of people misused OAuth 2. And when doing so, 
they created a lot of security holes. I remember back then, even Facebook had a major security hole. They were not fully aligning with the ideas of OAuth 2. They did one security check in a lax way, and they also misused it for logging in, for telling the user or telling the client who the user is. And so they opened a huge security hole. It's meanwhile closed. But to prevent this solution or this, those drawbacks, they started to define OpenID Connect. And the good message is OpenID Connect is not a completely different protocol. No, OpenID Connect can be seen as an extension to OAuth 2. OpenID Connect is OAuth 2 plus a bit more. It enforces best practices and it also tells the client who the user is. That means normally you use OpenID Connect and Wikipack OpenID Connect is using OAuth 2. So at the end of the day, you get two tokens in your client. The first token is telling you who the user is, like name Manfred, last name Steyer, shoe size 42, something like this. Key value pairs describing the user. And the second token is the access token, which gives your client access to the backend on behalf of the user. In former days, this was about tweets or adding friends. Nowadays, it's about, let's say, business use cases, creating an invoice, booking a book or buying a book, something like this. Yeah, so which security provider did you use with... Uh those standards so far? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, because, you know, when you are doing enterprise consultancy, you find different existing products in each and every company. But what I really like to use so far was Identity Server for .NET because it's written in .NET and so it can also be customized with .NET. You can add additional features like after the second login, the user needs to give you those three additional uh, fields like birth date or something like this, you know, permission marketing, salami tactics, or you can also implement other advanced use cases because it's a, let's call it .NET-based framework that can be used with two or three lines of code to create a security solution. It's also certificated. There are certificates for OpenID Connect telling you that this thing is doing what OpenID Connect tells you to do. Another tool I really like is Red Hat Keycloak. I mean, it comes from a company that is normally trusted, namely Red Hat, and it implements all those standards, OAuth 2 in different flavors, OpenID Connect, and it really has a nice user interface. It's written in Java, so you can customize it. Another product I really love when it comes to cloud-based solutions is um, OutZero because it's drop-dev easy. You just create your account and click a bit around and then you can do OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect with it. 
And something I also see on a regular basis is Active Directory, sometimes in the cloud, Azure Active Directory, sometimes in your local uh, domain. And um, in this case, you need to install the so-called Active Directory Federation Services. This is a part of the Windows Server and it is exposing the possibilities or some possibilities of the Active Directory via WebSafe protocols. WebSafe protocols like OAuth2, OpenID Connect, uh, they are using chats, for instance. But at the end of the day, one thing that's important, especially if you need to switch between identity servers, you need to have one person in your team. It can even be an external person that knows the protocols because at the end of the day, integrating an identity solution, switching out your identity solution is system integration. And system integration is always about troubleshooting. That means you have to look on the wire. You have to find out if the messages that are delivered are right to hunt down issues and to resolve them. This already several times saved my day saved my, I wouldn't say my project, but saved my day knowing about the protocols. Of course, this is nothing everyone needs to know because it's quite a special topic and quite a dry topic, but you should have one expert for this. Yeah. Recently, several details on using OAuth 2 for SPA changed. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, with pleasure. So the thing is that I think it was in 2019, the OAuth team met and they started to write a best practice document for using OAuth tool together with single page applications or with Java clients. And this best practice document changed some things that have been usual until then. For instance, uh, when we look at OAuth2, I said before, the official definition is it's a framework, a framework with several flows, and those flows can be seen as your protocols. Um, there are several flows so far, and one flow, the so-called implicit flow, was used for single-page applications. And now they are saying, don't use this uh, implicit flow anymore. Officially, it's still recommended by the document of 2012, but don't use it anymore because time passed by since 2012. We have learned a lot of things. And so we can tell you that there are some security issues with implicit flow. The thing is, you don't need to worry if you use implicit flow because if you really used it in a professional way, everything is fine. I mean, we all knew about those issues and possible attacks on the implicit flow. It's even a part of the OAuth specification of 2012. As each and every good security protocol, at the end of the document, you find some uh, possible attacks and how to... Uh, secure yourselves against those apps. 
So normally, if I have a professional implementation, a professional library, a professional identity solution, then you should be fine with implicit flow. However, this best practice document tells you that to make implicit flow safe, you need to think on this, on that, and on additional topics. And because of this, it is easy to forget about several uh, steps to make it safe. And so they decided to not recommend it anymore. What's recommended now is the so-called code flow. It's, as I call it, the mother of all the OAuth flows. It is like OAuth was intended or has been intended originally. It has been used so far by server-side web applications or by desktop applications, also by native applications native iOS applications, for instance. Yeah. And this flow shall be used. Another thing is you can now, according to this best practice document, use refresh tokens in your browser. A refresh token allows you to get a new token without user interaction. We, we've talked about it before. Normally, uh, access token is short-living. Because if it's stolen, the deaths should not do a lot with it. It will expire after some minutes, so they don't have a lot of fun with it. But on the other side, expiring on a regular basis every 10 minutes, for instance, shall not mean that the user needs to log in each and every 10 minutes. That would be too exhausting. And so we need to find a way to refresh our access token without user interaction. And this, this can be done with a refresh token. Finally, using refresh tokens have been forbidden, has been forbidden before, and officially it's still forbidden uh, in the browser because if you are the victim of cross-site scripting, then someone steals your refresh token and then you really have an issue because in this case, someone can refresh the stolen access token on a regular basis. And that's everything but fun. However, as there is this risk with cross-site scripting, they are uh, defining some countermeasures, some things you need to assure in your application to not get a victim of attacks against your refresh tokens. And they are also saying you need to know your possible attacks and you need to make sure you are safe. At the end of the day, that means you need to make sure you are safe against cross-site scripting because this is the number one uh, issue when it comes to browser-based security. Yeah, so to sum up, how long are the tokens valid and what to do if they expire? Yeah. So normally, they should be short-living, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Normally, 10 minutes is something I see on a regular basis. And if they expire, we need to refresh them. And this is where the client sends back the refresh token to the identity solution. The refresh token helps the identity solution to remember, wait, this is that user, this is Manfred. And if Manfred is still a good user, has not been locked, is still locked in, 
then uh, the identity solution will create a new access token and send it. Yeah. Before we had refresh tokens, we used cookies for this, but this is not that easy anymore because of restrictions in browsers, security-based restrictions, plus uh, this so-called silent refresh was also a bit tricky to implement. We had to use hidden iframes. This was not a beautiful solution. It was accepted because for a long time it was the only standard conform solution, but it was everything but pretty and it was a bit flaky when you implement. Are there any drawbacks to token-based security in a browser? Well, the thing is you need to store the token somewhere. And as discussed before, it does not matter much where you store it. If you are the victim of cross-site scripting, they will somehow retrieve it. So if you really want to minimize this risk, you need very short living tokens on the one side. And on the other side, you could switch back to good old cookies. It's funny, but cookies really became more secure in the last month. We have several attributes making cookies more secure. The last attribute was the same side attribute that is a nice protection against uh, cross-site request forgery. And we also have um, HTTP-only cookies, so JavaScript cannot even read it. A man in the middle could read it, but JavaScript cannot read it. That's why a modern cookie is considered to be a bit more safe than just having some access token in your browser. As mentioned before, it's always relative, and your biggest enemy when it comes to this is cross-site scripting perhaps also a bit cross-site request forgery. So make sure you don't get a victim of this and it does not matter that much. But if you want to have one more, let's say, one more layer of defense, then yeah, a cookie would increase the overall security because of same-site cookies, HTTP-only cookies. However... Cookies on the other side uh, are not that flexible. You can only work with the origin the cookie came from. That means you need to tunnel everything through your original origin. And perhaps this is a bit exhausting. Uh, you can also not say, well, now let's access this, that, and a third backend. No you are restricted to just one back. On the other side, when going with cookies, you take a lot of complexity from your Angular client. Perhaps you have a server-based out-of-the-box solution that is redirecting the user automatically to the login page. And after logging in the user, uh, a cookie is created for you. There are even some application-level firewalls Some people talk about OAuth proxies that do this automatically. 
And this also shows that we can combine this with OAuth. In this case, the cookie is just used for the communication between you and your very own origin. And in your very own origin, there is something like session management. This website, let's call it a backend for frontend. This brings us back to the architecture topic. This backend for frontend will do an OAuth flow, perhaps also OpenID Connect, and then store your OAuth token in a server-side session. And every time you access your backend for frontend, this backend for frontend can take the token out of your session and send it to other backends. In this case, everything is very transparent from you. You just have to deal with your cookies and perhaps you need to prevent somehow from cross-site request forgery. And of course, also from cross-site scripting, this risk is not going away, but you don't need to deal directly with OAuth2 because it also automatically um, is issued on the server side, hidden by the server side. So can we have a single sign-on with Cookie2? Yeah, that's possible. Uh, if we, for instance, combine cookies with um, OAuth2 or OpenID Connect, as I just explained it before, the client is talking via a cookie to the backend and the backend holds the token in a session variable and uses it when accessing further backends. But in this case, you need to bundle everything through your origin through your backend for from. When choosing a library or identity solution, mm. what should we take about? Yeah. So I think it would be a good idea to make sure that your solution comes from a vendor you can trust and that it is OpenID Connect certified. I mean... At the end of the day, this just tells you that some test cases have been passed, well-defined test cases that check if your application is doing what OpenID Connect tells it to do. But, of course, it gives you some confidence if they have this certificate. Of course, it should be something that is used out there in the wild. It should not be an experimental library. So look at the download numbers. And it should implement modern approaches. Um, I've mentioned it before. Soon we will get OAuth 2.1, which will incorporate best practices. And I just tell you three things Uh, those best practices are about free words, free terms, and those terms shall also be on the feature list of your library. One thing is the code flow. Another thing is Pixie, B-K-C-E, they call it Pixie. And another thing is refresh tokens, if you want to go with this modern approach for token refresh. This is the minimum set of features uh, library should support if you get started with it nowadays. Okay, this was the last technical question. So now we switch to the soft part, the human part of this podcast. And the uh, first question is, what skills 
must an IT consultant have? Mm. What are the key skills? We yeah. know that how, how important is communication, teamwork, flexibility or modesty. What are the companies looking for? Mm. Yeah, of course, uh, everyone wants to have someone like Superman when they think on an IT consultant. On the other side, no one can compile all those cool and nice uh, skills. But I think I can break it down to some areas. One area is you need hard skills. You need to have a very sound technical understanding for your area uh, where you are an expert. And also having some foundational knowledge also helps you to find issues faster. So you need a very sound technical skill set on the one side. But on the other side, this is not enough. A lot of people are very smart, but they are not cool consultants because as a consultant, you need also to be capable to work together with people. You need to be capable to connect to people. Perhaps connecting to other people, to other companies, is the most important soft skill. With connecting, I mean, you need to see their situation. You need to see that there is not the best solution at all, but there is only a fitting solution in their very environment. And that's why you have to see their issues through their eyes. And for this, of course, you need communication skills and empathy to do this. But uh, you also need to um, be, let's call it, bold enough to don't use your favorite solution there because perhaps they have ruled out this or that solution for this or that very sound reason in their environment. It's more about to finding something that really fits for them. So perhaps we should not think in terms like perfect or ugly. You always hear, well, this is a beautiful solution. It's a perfect solution. Well, this is an ugly solution. It smells. No, those are not uh, categories you should think in. Uh, you should rather think in categories like this is more or less fitting with regards to their current situation, their current knowledge, their current environment, their current restrictions regarding their organization, and so on and so So Yeah, I think those yeah. are the two important things. So soft skills, we need to be connectable to them and really sound technical skills. So what makes a good IT consultant? Well, um, I mean, we are all our experts. And as an expert, you hear it now in this podcast, we really do like to talk about our topics. But first and foremost, as an IT consultant, you should learn to listen. Listen to find out where their pain points are, where their restrictions are, how their context looks alike, how their restrictions, for instance, in their company look alike. And after that, perhaps it's even a bad idea to present a good solution because we all know this. 
if we just get a solution, we are a bit reluctant. Ooh, there is some external guy. He gives us this solution. We are thinking about this for three months. He has listened to us for three hours and now he has this big solution. I don't like it. No, don't give them the perfect solution. Uh, what I like is ask questions so that you get step by step into their direction of a solution. Perhaps asking questions is one of the most important skills, uh, asking the right questions to perhaps even help them to find out by themselves that they have currently an issue, that what they are doing now is a ticking time bomb. Perhaps they don't see it because, you know, sometimes uh, you are that involved in a project that you don't see the issues anymore. And if you say, hey, this is bad, then perhaps they will be reluctant. But if you help them to find out by themselves, hey, this is a ticking time bomb, we cannot use, I don't know, AngularJS anymore for the next 10 years. We need to migrate to Angular, just one example then uh, they will more likely embrace your recommendations. So who are the typical employees of IT consultants? Well, it could be each and every company. Um, I see two different employers for IT, consultant, IT consultants. Um, some companies are that huge that they have internal consultants. They have their own division with a lot of consultants uh, traveling around between the branches of the company, helping them and also helping to spread knowledge. This is one possibility. Of course, this has the big advantage that they already know the business of the big company. And so they don't need... Uh, a long warm-up phase. They immediately uh, see the pain points they have in their environment. The drawback of it might be an internal consultant might become blind to some issues because they see it all the day or the days and if they see it all the day then uh, they will ignore it at a specific point in time. This is something an external consultant will immediately see and an external consultant will immediately make you aware about or of. Yeah, and this is also the second category, external consultants. I see this in medium-sized companies, but also in big companies. Some of my customers have their internal consultants And I work together with them because, you know, as an internal consultant, you cannot know everything. So sometimes it's a good idea to get some fresh external knowledge. And sometimes internal consultants tell me as an external one, hey, talk with this division. I don't have the right skills for this because I'm more an expert for this. They need that. Talk with this division and help them and afterwards let's have a chat uh, because I'm interested into what you told them. I think those are the two categories. Yeah. Are there any companies you come back to with joy? If so, why? Yeah. So some companies really just book us for one consultancy 
and for or for one uh, training workshop and for them it's fine they say well now we've learned to swim or we learned how to learn to swim now we know we need to take care of this test and that and that means we have to do our own homework now and uh, there are also repeating customers customers that say hey please visit us after this workshop once a quarter and give us feedback please answer questions and of course if you have such a long-term relationship it's always nice if you can come back to them if you see what they did how their application is growing how your advices are respected how your advices help you uh, to grow and to make the application a bit more stable, a bit more sustainable. Yeah. It's always something where I'm getting bad eyes because that's, that's really beautiful. So now is the question about personal branding. Does mm. personal branding help you win new contracts? Well, yeah, the thing is, I guess I'm doing personal branding, but I never had the intention to do it. I mean, I'm just moving around. I'm just speaking at conferences. I'm just following topics I like. And this with a lot of enthusiasm. And I think this is what can be called personal branding. This is the best. It was never a master plan to do this, but sometimes it turned out to uh, be beneficial for my business. Yes, of course. Uh, is personal branding in general a good idea? Um, I'm not sure. It can be a good idea. It can also be a good idea to use the brand of a strong company or to build for your company a brand. Everything has advantages and disadvantages. But one thing I can tell you for sure, it is for sure important to focus on one brand. It might be your personal one. It might be the brand of your company or of an organization. Uh, but just focus on one brand. Because even if we learn in school from something like a multi-brand strategy, for a freelancer like us, this is too much. We cannot afford this. We don't have the time to manage several brands. Just do one thing and do it good. And then you will be successful. Yeah, that's perfect. Last question. Favorite food and why is it a burger? <laughs> yeah, good question. So the thing is, and I think with this, I'm really meeting cliches. I really like uh, junk food. That means I like burgers. I mean, you can tell by looking at my t-shirt size. I love pizza, I love ice cream, I love uh, coffee and Coke. So yeah, I like all those things that are not that healthy. But I'm really confident with this because I've seen a statistic some times ago, I think it was this week, and in this statistic, some scientists have been investigating what makes you live a long life. And your weight was not the top one influence of the length of your life for your life expectation. And it was not doing sports. 
Smoking was a bit more on the top of it, but on the very top, there were uh, there has been something like, are you connected with other people? Have you a good social life? And it looks like that if it, this is the uh, most important influence on the length of your life. And so I'm I'm quite confident, even though I like to eat pizza and Coke and coffee and ice cream and, of course, burger. By the way, uh, in the last time, I think you recommended it to me, I'm really into veggie burgers. I know a lot of people cannot imagine that a veggie burger can be tasty, but I really tried it. And since I tried it the first time, I really love it. Almost all the times I'm going to McDonald's, I'm going for a veggie burger. And I have a good conscience because I know no animal needed to die for my unhealthy food. So yeah, it's a win-win-win situation for me, for my lifetime, for the cow, for everyone. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, Manfred, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, this valuable conversation today. And uh, yeah, I think about food, we make some another episode because we have a lot of things to discuss. Yeah, so, let's do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, so, that's a good thing. Yeah, this is the story of my life, my weight. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much. And see you around. Yeah, see you around. Thanks for having me. <laughs>